Today a very big event is going to occur across our nation, and it's not the Super Bowl. Today we will partake in the Lord's Supper of infinite more value and importance, and it is a wonderful day. I love Lord's Supper Sundays, especially today of all days when we are in Exodus 25 to 27. See, today, thousands of people, now I am talking about the Super Bowl, will gather from across our nation inside of a building that is nothing less than an architectural wonder to worship, I mean, to watch, to watch two teams, the Eagles and the Patriots, go head-to-head. And the venue for the Super Bowl this year is in Minneapolis, Minnesota, in what is known as the U.S. Bank Stadium. It's actually uh, the home of the Minnesota Vikings. Are there any Vikings fans in here? Okay, one right back there, single, the Lone Star, Viking van. Uh, It's going to be at their home turf. Unfortunately, they're not in the Super Bowl. Sorry. Um, But that venue is said to have cost $1.13 billion to build and seat 73,000 people. They're all going to be watching, right? Not worshiping. It's not a temple, right? It's a stadium. What does this have to do with Exodus 25 to 27? I would say as wondrous as that building may be, it is nothing in comparison to the construction described in Exodus 25 to 27 before us this morning. The tabernacle of Israel, the dwelling place of God, prior before the temple, is a building that is virtually unmatched in significance and in wonder. And it is no mere tent pitched in the wilderness. The book of Hebrews says it is a humanly copy of a heavenly reality. It was made, constructed of expensive materials, fine metals. I tried to look this up. There's some range on this. what, What would it cost to construct a tabernacle today as specified in these chapters? What would it cost? Estimates range from between 10 to 50 million dollars, not including labor and artistry. The central and the most amazing room of the tabernacle could only be accessed one time a year. One time a year, think about that. By one man. Let me ask you this morning, what is the point of this tent? What is the point of all the extravagance of this tent? What relevance does it have for your life today? Why does it matter for you individually, for your family, for your job, for our church? I hope by this you see this has great, great relevance for us. On the road to Emmaus in Luke chapter 24, we spoke about this in Sunday school today. On the road to Emmaus, 
The disciples, after the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus, two of his disciples were walking on the road and discussing the events, and a stranger appeared to them. And he said, this stranger began to interpret for them all the things concerning Christ, beginning with Moses and all the prophets. Beginning with Moses. Beginning with Moses. That's where we're at today in Exodus. So we are going to see, Lord willing, by his spirit and for his glory, if he would grant us. We're going to see how this book of Moses points, especially in this section on the tabernacle, to Jesus, to our Savior. And I think you'll find there's much relevance and hope for you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, would your spirit manifest himself in power this morning? Would you open our minds to behold the truth of what is written and what is seemingly mundane details of Exodus 25 through 27? And Lord, would you open our minds in such a way that we hear your word anew and that our hearts burn within us in no way, in a way that no Super Bowl ever can make it? Lord, would we burn with worship Turn from our sin and rejoice in our great Savior. Full atonement can it be. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Would you magnify our Savior today at Kahului Baptist Church? Would you magnify him at Kihei Baptist, Lahaina Baptist, Valley Isle Fellowship, Waipuna Chapel, Pukalani Baptist, everywhere where the gospel is preached, would you magnify Jesus this morning? And in his name we pray. Amen. All right, number one, I have two points. Number one, the meeting place. Number two, the mercy seat. So that's our two points, the meeting place and the mercy seat. Now, the Lord commands his people in Exodus 25 through 27, he's going to say, command them, let them make me a sanctuary, a sanctuary. That comes from the Latin word sanctus, meaning sacred or holy, set apart for God. Let them make me a sanctuary, a holy place for him to dwell in the midst of his people. Now, this theme of the tabernacle is going to dominate. It's just going to absolutely dominate the rest of the time in Exodus. All the way, we're walking through to the grand finale, and we're going to see this tabernacle occurring again and again. In, in chapters 25 and on, you're going to see pattern, the instructions for the tabernacle. And if we were to read all of the chapters, you would hear this. Wah, 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 wah. Not to demean the word of God, but because that's, it, it would mean very little to our ears, especially somebody like mine who has no construction background, all right? So, but that's what would happen. So you're going to have the pattern of the tabernacle given, and then you're going to see all of this repeated in some form or fashion as the tabernacle is being constructed. And so this has a lot of details in this narrative and Lord willing, I'm going to leave much unsaid and revisit all of it throughout our time until the grand finale of Exodus, which, if God permits, will be on Easter Sunday. All right, remember, we're working through uh, Exodus has how many pinnacles, how many climaxes? Three. 
three. Very good. It has three climaxes. Most stories have one climax, right? It builds, it builds, and builds, and then the, the final finale or whatever that is, and then it goes. Exodus has three, and we're now on our third leg, building to the final grand finale of Exodus. And we're going to save that grand finale for Easter Sunday. But suffice it, for, suffice it to say for now, the sheer magnitude of information in these chapters, while to us seems insignificant, the sheer magnitude of information about the tabernacle is a really big clue to you, to us, to the reader, that this is really, really important. This is super important. I mean, you have the, the exodus from Egypt, the ten, the ten plagues, and then the Ten Commandments, and God's revealing himself at Mount Sinai, and then the rest of the book is about the tabra- a tent? It just kind of seems like a letdown, doesn't it? Or does it? Or maybe we're missing something. Maybe we're missing something. And so that's what it's showing us is the sheer magnitude of material on the tabernacle punctuated only by about two other scenes is an indicator to us of the significance of the things we are seeing. Now, there's a lot we could say here. There's a lot we could say here with this passage, a lot of directions we could go. For instance, verse 1 or sorry, verse 2, speak to the people of Israel that they take from me a contribution from every man whose heart moves him. You shall receive the contribution from me. That would be a really good sermon passage on giving, wouldn't it? Right, we just talk about giving and, and how your heart should move in giving. That's one way we could go with that. That'd be very appropriate, and it's definitely here. Another thing we could say about this is we could talk about the pattern that comes for this. Exactly according to the pattern that I give you, you shall make it. He'll say this over and over again throughout this time. Exactly as, verse 9, exactly as I've shown you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all of its furniture, so you shall make it. We could talk about there about God is very specific where he will dwell, and how we ought to likewise take great care in the things that we do on a Sunday morning to ensure that we're not just approaching God in a willy-nilly fashion or what feels good to me, but God has given very specific directives in how he is to be approached and how he is to be worshipped. He's a God of order. There's a pattern, and if just for your attention to call your mind to your bulletin, there's a pattern in our order of service, believe it or not that is meant to reflect the truths of the gospel. We become awakened to our sinful condition. We receive grace that is ours in Christ Jesus. We we respond to the word of God at the end through repentance, praise, confession, worship. And then we go forth. We are sent out into the world as missionaries, representatives of Christ. There's a pattern to our order of worship here. We do that intentionally and purposefully. God is a God who is a God of order and pattern and structure. We could talk about all those things, but we're not going to talk about any of them. What are we going to talk about? I want you to consider the magnitude of what's being proposed in this passage. God wants them to build a place for him to dwell in their midst. God wants to dwell in the midst, amongst, 
with his people. The King of kings, the Lord of lords, the Holy One of Israel, their Redeemer. He wants to be with his people, not distant from his people, but with them. And this tent, this tabernacle, will reflect the character, the holy character of the one living there. Now, by itself, the tent is about 15 feet wide by 45 feet long. So uh, I'm not sure how long this front pew is. I wanted to, like, get a tape measure out and measure it sometime this week. But I would guess roughly-ish that the length of this uh, to the back here, right? It's not going to be much larger. It is not a large tent, 15 feet wide by 45 feet long. And then as you work your way, actually, there's a picture up here. Can you? Is there a picture up there? Can we get it? It might show up there at some point. It'll pop up there. You'll see a tent. You'll know that's the one. There it is. See? There's a tab. So that is actually a live replica from Israel um, of the tabernacle, the dimensions and everything. So it doesn't look like anything necessarily glorious from the outside. Remember, this is a mobile dwelling place for God to be in the midst of his people. And that's essentially what it may have looked like according to the dimensions here. And as you work your way from the outer courts, this little open area in the center, from the outer courts to the inner courts, to the holy place, and then to the holy of holies, the sanctus sanctorum. The, the material goes from less valuable, less expensive, less fine, to more valuable, more expensive. You see more fine materials as you get into the holy place and on into the holy of holies. Why? Because this was to be God's representative throne room amongst his people until they reached the promised land. And it's in this place, which is quite amazing, this dwelling place that we see two realities of God set side by side. Two realities about the nature of God side by side, juxtaposed. The first one is God's imminence. The second one is his transcendence. See, the tabernacle would be the physical representation of God's abiding place, his, his presence with his people. He's imminent. He's near. He's, he's not distant. He is a God who has redeemed his people so that they can be with him. He's near to his people in their very midst. And so they could look out on any given day and see the smoke rising from the tabernacle and know that their God is with them wherever they go, whatever enemies they face or challenges they encounter, that their God is with them. And yet, Side by side, everything about this tabernacle testified to the transcendence of God. He's with you, but he's incomprehensible, totally, to our finite minds. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so are his ways and our ways and his thoughts and our thoughts. He is unapproachable by fallen men. He exists outside of space and time, ultimately. And so we see his imminence, he is near, and his transcendence side by side in the tabernacle. As you were to read on in the details, you would see there's two sections, as I said. One is the holy place. 
So within this rectangular tent, there's the holy place. This is an, uh, the entrance room, the, the landing zone. If you were to walk in, you're right into the holy place. And in there you have a few items. You have the table for the bread of, pres- uh, the table for the bread of presents. You have the lampstand and the altar of incense. All of these are very important. We don't have time for all of them. The lampstand, you guys have seen, is uh, also known as a menorah. It's got six or seven branches out to the side, depending on how they make it and custom it, and it might look different. But there's, and this is actually designed, really interesting, to look like a tree. It has hammered work of, of an almond flower or almond blossom, and it's designed to look like uh, an almond tree. And this is designed to recall their mind to another place where God dwelled with his people in the beginning. And there was another tree, and God's presence was where? In the Garden of Eden. We'll talk more about that in a minute. And there's the altar of incense where there was a fragrant aroma. So as as soon as you walk into this this tabernacle where God's presence is representative with his people, you go from outside and hot and dust and there's probably cattle roaming and things like that and you can imagine being in a hot field with literally millions of people and then you walk into the presence of God and there is a what? Sweet aroma. Lights. We're seeing this over and over again. God's presence is truly engaging all of the senses of his people. All of them. As you move on from the holy place into the holy of holies, again, you can only go in there one time a year if you're the high priest. You'll find a very important piece in this, which is called the Ark of the Covenant. An ark means a box, basically a box, a four-foot wide, uh, sorry, four-foot long box, about three feet wide. That's one artistic representation of what it may have looked like of pure hammered gold. There's poles to carry it, things like like this. Uh, There's two cherubim on the top facing one another. Inside this box was three objects. Do you remember what they are? The Ten Commandments, the, the Table of Covenant. Manna, a jar full of manna, unspoiled, and Aaron's rod that had budded. You'll read about all of these things later in the narrative. That's inside the ark. To get to the Holy of Holies, you had to go in through a very thick curtain, a veil that was later said to be about four inches thick, 45 feet high. All of this, all of these details, the setup, the walls, the curtains, the the inner veil, all of these things communicated to Israel one message, stay out. I'm in your midst, stay out of here. Do not approach my throne room. If you do, you will die. It all is communicating, stay out. So in a sense, while God is dwelling in their midst in a limited manner, he is not to be approached haphazardly. They were only, and we are only, to approach him as he stipulates at risk of penalty of death, and that this is actually to protect you. 
This is God being good because God is holy and we are sinful and fallen and wicked. We do wicked things and were we to just barge into the presence of a holy God, we would what? Die. When John the Apostle in Revelation chapter 1 saw the Son of Man in glory, he said his response was, I fell over as one who was dead. We don't just walk into the presence of God. We must approach him as he commands us and that this is for our good. And if you recall, you saw those cherubim on the top, all these things pointing us back to another thread in the scriptures in the garden. When they sinned, God told them what? Get out. And he placed what at the entrance to Eden? Cherubim with a flaming sword guarding the entrance, keeping them from what? Another tree, the tree of life. And that this was God's kindness actually in letting them die. Had they eaten, we saw in in Genesis from our time a few years ago, those were here. Had God allowed them, had he permitted them in their fallen state to eat of the knowledge, or sorry, of the tree of life, they would have been confirmed in a state of sinfulness, unredeemable. And so he, in his mercy, drives them out of the garden, ultimately so that Christ can come and redeem his people. And now we see that same thread, cherubim, saying, get out from the garden. Now in the tabernacle, the Ark of the Covenant, where God's throne room is said to be, two cherubim, a veil and everything saying, not get out, but stay out. And so you see these two details side by side. God is holy. He's just. He's good. He's transcendent, and yet he's imminent. He's near. He desires to be with his people. And what I don't want you to get lost in and all the details of what's in there, I want you to remember this massive point that comes over and over and over again in the Bible is that God wants to dwell in the midst of his people. If you are his this morning, God will not stop working until you are with him. Every good work that he begins, he finishes. Do you ever feel like or wonder whether God, after all you've done, really wants to be with you? He does. Look at the tabernacle. See these details. See this effort. And remember that God loves you. He loves you. He really does. He wants to be with you. I'll say this before I end even. If you're here and you don't know God, if you don't have a relationship with God, He invites you to be in His presence. He invites you today. The invitation stands, come to me. Don't leave today. Don't watch a Super Bowl game. Don't do anything of lesser importance until you have settled your soul before a holy God. Say, yes, I want to be with him. I want to be with him. The next question then is how? So if everything in this tent communicates Stay out. You're sinful. I'm holy. Don't come near. How then do you draw near to God? How? How? That leads us to our next point. 
mercy seat, the mercy, the mercy seat. And number one is meeting place. Number two, mercy seat. Let's read Exodus 25. And we're just going to go to verse 22. Sorry, verse, let's do verse 20. The cherubim shall spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings, their faces one toward another. Toward the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubim be, and you shall put the mercy seat on the top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. There I will meet with you, and from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. What's happening here? So there's this thing, a mercy seat, right? That's what he's talking about. He's giving him uh, directions on how to make this mercy seat. Now, I grew up in church, and it wasn't until probably even recently that I always pictured this mercy chair, right? Like a mercy seat. Like it must be a chair on top made of angel wings or something, right? It's just kind of, I'm trying to visualize this as a young man even. And, and it wasn't until very recently that I was like, the mercy seat, it's not, it's not a seat as in a chair. It's a seat with a different connotation. We could say Pearl Harbor is the seat of U.S. naval power in the Pacific. What am I saying? It's the location. It's the location. So it's not, whenever you see mercy seat here, don't read there's a chair of angel wings. This is a location, the, the location of God's mercy. If, you, if you're a sinner, if you've broken God's covenant, where do I go to get mercy? The mercy seat is where that will occur. And actually, the English, English translation is mercy, seat. If you were to read it in the Hebrew, it would literally be translated something as an atonement cover or reconciliation cover. English translated as mercy. And inside this ark, this box, this location where mercy comes, what's in there? What do we say is in there? From the text, the table of the law, we could say summarized in the Ten Commandments, a copy of the covenant with God. So inside this box is a mercy seat, or sorry, is the table of covenant. One time a year, the high priest would come in with the blood of a sacrifice and sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat, on the lid. This is important. What's going on here? What's going on? The visual representation is extremely important. Can we put the Ark of the Covenant box picture back up here? That gold box, the picture. There it is. What's the visual effects going on here? In the box is the law. On top is where the blood of sacrifice would be sprinkled. Above that is what? God's presence. His presence. When he was there with his people, that was where God was. And there is no visible representation of him because that would be idolatry. 
And so above the Ark of the Covenant is God. Below that is the mercy seat. Below that is the law. What is going on? God in all his holiness looks down at the mercy seat and sees within it the law that exposes the sin of Israel and indeed exposes all of our sin. Why? Because we break it. And so the location of the blood becomes very significant because in between God's presence and the law that we break comes the blood of an atoning sacrifice that covers the law. That covers the transgression of the law, turning away the wrath of God and therefore reconciling God to His people. Thus the blood on the ark provides safety from judgment. So when God comes down to dwell with His people, He doesn't look down and see the law that they are breaking and going to break. First of all, He sees the saving blood of an atoning sacrifice. Mind, my mind just blows, and I just, I love, but there's more. There's more. And what we see this is that we cannot approach God without some means or manner to cover our sin. Because when God looks down at his mercy seat, he sees his law broken, and it kindles his wrath, and it must be covered and atoned for, lest we face his judgment. So, I said earlier, God invites you to draw near, but if you come near to him without coming in the way he designates, you come in your own name with your sin, your wrongdoing, your breaking of God's law. You come before his presence and invite judgment on yourself. So what do we do? What do we do? We must account for this in order to be near to God. The good news is that God has accounted for this. Go in your Bibles to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, verse 22 to 25. Remember where you're going to see Jesus. All of this points to Jesus. We're going to Romans 3, and then later I want you to just go ahead and put your, your finger in the Bible to Hebrews chapter 10. Okay, so just put your finger there, but we're going to be in Romans 3. In Romans 3, 22 to 25, we find a very interesting Greek word. Why is this Greek word interesting? Because it is consistently used to translate Throughout the Old Testament, this Greek word is consistently used to translate the Hebrew word for mercy seat. So if you were a Greek reading a Greek Bible of Exodus, you would read in Exodus 25 to 27 of a mercy seat, and you would see a Greek word that Paul uses here and is consistently used to translate when they're talking about the mercy seat. And we're going to read it right here in Romans chapter 3, verse 22 to 25. Check this out. There is no distinction, starting about midway in 22, for there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward, here it is, whom 
through Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a, what is it? Propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. That Greek word, hilasterion, propitiation, is the Hebrew equivalent of mercy seat. He is calling Jesus the mercy seat, the, the propitiation, the atonement cover. So where do you go to get your sins covered? What is he saying? Jesus. That's where you go. How do I draw near to God to have a relationship with him? Go to Jesus, your propitiation, your wrath-bearing sacrifice. A substitutionary death is what he died. And so the priest would come in with the, the lamb, and he would take this animal and slaughter it, and he would take his blood and cover it on the mercy seat. And what did it symbolize? That somebody is dying in the place of the one represented. The lamb stands as a substitute. Why? Because the wages of sin is death. So somebody has to die. And what this says is Jesus, the lamb of God, was slaughtered to take away sins. Amen. Where do you go today for mercy? Forgive your sins. You go to the true location of mercy, the things that Exodus 25 to 27 pointed to. You go to Christ. How do you draw near to God today? To receive Christ by faith and walk in Him. There's still more. There's still more. We're going to end in Hebrews 10. Hebrews 10, 19 through 25. If you were to be in Hebrews 10, 1, it would say that these things, and he's talking about the things in Exodus 25, these things were a shadow of the things to come. They were a shadow. Think about that. They weren't the substance. They were the shadow. The tabernacle, the tent, Ark of the Covenant, lampstand, these things are a shadow. And then he goes on in verse 19. Let's, we'll pick up in... In verse 19, I'll need to click there with you because you guys are faster than me with your page Bibles. Therefore, brothers, now think about these things. The holy place, okay? The holy of holies, this is what he's talking about. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence. You could translate that boldness. What happens if you approach the tent in Exodus 25? Die. Die. Now he's saying, we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain. That is, through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, he's going to tell us to do three things. Let us draw near. See, since all these things are true, let us draw near. Not stay out, draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider 
how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. The tabernacle screamed, stay out. Christ, through Christ, he invites us to draw near, and not to draw near fearfully, but confidently, confidently. Matthew 27, 51, recording the crucifixion of Christ when he died and gave up the Spirit. It said, the veil in the temple tore in two. That 45-foot curtain, four inches thick, tore from top to bottom. What is he saying? Whereas once it was stay out, now the invitation stands, come near. Come near. God himself has removed the barrier. And he says, come, come, come. Now, let's talk about those things. Some of you in here, many of you, some point in your life has confessed faith in Christ. You've received him by grace through faith. You were baptized, and you had a vibrant relationship with him, but possibly maybe through negligence or sinful struggles, your relationship's grown cold. You feel distant. You don't feel near. You feel anything but. You wonder if you can ever be near to God. Or maybe because of your sin, even though you see this and you hear and you understand that God invites me to come near, you think, because of my sin, I must separate myself. I must stay distant. I am unworthy. If that's you, beloved, look to Christ. Don't look to your sin of guilt or or the effects of your sin and guilt and shame and condemnation or how you feel or your failures, look to Christ. Holy to Christ and hear His promise come near. Let us boldly, confidently draw near to Christ. Your sins are forgiven. The shame you feel, if you feel shame for your failing, is not from God. It is directly from Satan, a lie from the pit of hell to immobilize you, to paralyze you, and to render you joyless. The Lord invites you back. Come. Come near to him. That's the first invitation. Let us draw near. Second, second point, briefly from Hebrews Hold fast. Let us hold fast the confession of our faith without wavering. Without wavering. Some of you maybe this morning are doubting. You're, you're maybe on the verge and you're, you're struggling. You're trembling. You're not sure. Is this thing real? Is, is God real? Does he really love me? I'm, I'm uncertain, Pastor Randy. I need evidence. I need hope. And Paul says, no, no, no. We have a greater high priest, a greater tabernacle, no veil. Draw near. Come see. Trust him and hold fast. Don't give up. 
persevere, press on through the darkness, and on the other side, you will see Christ in all His glory there holding you like a solid rock. He is faithful. Trust His promises. And then the third way, consider. Let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. So on the basis of this great grace we have received, boldly, confidently approach the throne, and how can we meaningfully at Kahului Baptist Church, how can we truly and meaningfully stir one another up for love and good works? How can we spur each other on? You ever go running with somebody? Those who like to run, you're like, nope, I don't ever run, so never go running with anybody. Have you ever gone running with somebody or, or doing something with somebody, and you're going side by side, and they start going a little bit faster than you, and then you start kind of keeping up, and you go faster, and, you, and now you're racing? Anybody ever do that? No? Yes, yeah, you guys know. And then you're like, stop doing that, right? Just, can we just run? How can we spur one another on in this manner to love and good deeds? Now, some of you will hear this in here because you're sensitive to the Spirit. You're sensitive to what God wants you to do, and you'll feel pricked in your conscience, and you'll say, man, I should do more. And you're already doing a lot, and you'll say, man, I should do even more. Man, I'm just not doing enough. And I'm not talking to you this morning. Thank you. You are serving, and I appreciate your service. I am talking to those in here who are doing nothing Nothing. How can we spur you on to love and good deeds? If you do nothing, you waste your spiritual gifts. You hinder your own joy. And you are disobedient to the Lord. It's true. You have a role to play. A valuable role. You've been redeemed, set free. Don't leave here and say, man, I know I, should, I know I should be involved and engaged and help my brothers and sisters. I'm just too busy. Don't do it. Leave here and say, I need to make a plan to change my life, to serve Jesus, not myself. Amen. Not myself, not my comfort, not my ease, not all these things that tempt me or take me away from serving others in love. I need to serve the Lord because of this great, great freedom and responsibility and privilege He has granted to us. And you will find the very thing you want, which is joy and peace and happiness, is exactly what the Lord is inviting you to when He invites you to serve Him. As we close... I just want to reiterate, if you don't know Jesus, come near. Come near. Place your faith in him. Our invitation today is going to be the Lord's Supper. That's our response of praise, the Lord's Supper. And so let's pray, and we will transition to that. Father in heaven, wonder of wonders that here in February of 2018, we don't have the shadow of the tabernacle. We have the substance in Christ. The way is opened for us to be with you, to be near through Christ. May we receive him by faith. 
May we walk in him by faith, and may we live for your glory and our joy. In Jesus' name, amen.